a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I came back after nine months. I was found. Right now on KSL+. Plus. There were definitely times that I really wondered if I would survive. Elizabeth Smart looks back on the kidnapping from her home. Having him tell me that there was a knife at my neck and to not make a sound and to get up and to go with him. Held captive in the mountains. I just remember thinking, he's going to rape me and he's going to kill me. Only to be found nine months later. It was just people being aware ultimately that brought me home. A horrific experience she now uses to help others. There's an opportunity for me to make a difference and it's not just an opportunity it feels more like a responsibility i'm matt rascone and this week 20 years after elizabeth smart was found we hear from her and her conversation with my colleague jed bull plus a unique perspective on that moment in 2003 eliza pace and i talked to chris thomas he was the smart family's spokesperson during those awful nine months she was missing he recently wrote a book about the experience called Unexpected. I want to start with the, the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions that come to you when this time of year comes around. Oh, every year. Uh, this is a time of year where I'm very reflective. Uh, that event 20 years ago was life-changing, and it's still hard to believe it happened. Uh, at the same time, I'm always kind of, what were the lessons learned? Uh, what, what's happened since? What did we learn then? Have we applied that? Have we not applied that? It's something I've been thinking a lot about for the last 20 years. So talk about how some, an experience like that you know, lasts this long, where every year it's sort of brought back. Matt, I, we got involved as volunteers initially. We thought this would take a few days. There would, she'd be found, there'd be a party, and we'd go back to our day jobs. It's incredible we're talking about it 20 years later. And the impact that Elizabeth's had, uh, both here locally but also nationally, and, and the connection people feel to her. I mean, that time while she was missing, it's as though she became part of our extended family. We all looked at her as a sister, a cousin, uh, a daughter. Uh, and, and we still feel that way today to a degree. And I think there's such love and admiration for what her family did while she was missing and for what she's doing today, carrying on that legacy of, of taking something very tragic and making it something very positive. Uh, I think that resonates with us. But it, it is a real phenomenon that this story is something that we're still talking about in great detail 20 years later. 20 years ago this week, Elizabeth Smart was rescued on the streets of Sandy by Alert Utahns. Her discovery brought an end to nine months of horrors that she endured at the hands of their captors. New specialist Jed Bull. Did you always keep hope alive that, that there would be a rescue? Did you think that there was a search? Did you know that there was a search going on or suspect that there was a search going on? Um, initially, I did know there was a search going on because my captors would bring back 
flyers, missing posters, and newspaper articles about the search effort.、Um, I was not aware of how big the search was. I didn't know how long it went on for,、um, and there were definitely times that I. Really wondered if I would survive.、Um, things just seemed so dismal and so, frankly, difficult, impossible that I, I honestly didn't know if I would survive.、Um, but then I'd wake up the next day, and I knew that I wasn't going to give up personally, and I wanted to go home. And I had come to the realization early on that. You know, I might not ever get a chance to escape or be rescued until my captors die. That could be, I don't know, thirty years from now.、Um, and could I survive thirty years? In all actuality, I don't know. But as a fourteen-year-old kid in that situation, I kept on telling myself that. If it took waiting 30 years to be rescued, then I was going to wait 30 years. What enabled you to keep keep that hope alive? What what in you? What was your source of that resiliency? I mean, it was it was my family. It was believing that they'd still love me, they still wanted me back, and that they'd still be there for me. And you sort of became the spokesperson for the family during that time.、Uh, talk about how that how that ended up that way. Sure. So Elizabeth's cousin,、uh, Sierra Smart, who was a senior at the University of Utah, started an internship with my firm two weeks before Elizabeth was abducted, and we also had some other connections to the family. It was almost like the group of people I was working with, like we were destined to do this.、Mm-hmm. And so we initially volunteered.、Um, we had about eight people working full time in those first few weeks, and then. Uh, the other people in my office went back to save our clients, and and I stayed with the family on basically a nine and a half month sabbatical. And it started out initially just managing the crush of media.、Uh, early on, there were seventy or eighty cameras at the press events. There were hundreds of interview requests, and it was just trying to keep、uh, some sort of semblance. The, the family recognized the importance of the media in finding Elizabeth,、mm-hmm. and wanted to be as savvy as possible in. Taking advantage of it, but it also was very reactive. There was just so much interest. Very, very early on, there was a lot of interest. And so, how do we manage that? How do we get enough family、uh, people within the family? We had both、uh, Ed and Lois Smart had large extended families, and most of the people were willing to do、uh, interviews. So we had a really nice arsenal of people that、uh, could serve as spokespeople. The challenge was figuring out where to put them and making sure that they were being consistent in what they were saying. And so there was a lot of that work early on, and, and my role was heavily in that coordination effort. As time moved on,、um, I took on a role of, as, as being the spokesperson on weekends and occasionally, depending on what what the issues were. But I also became very close to the family, and, and the role expanded beyond communications, where I was a close confidant and, and was involved with the investigation, involved with lots of different elements, and, and really grew close. The Smarts are an incredible family, and. That period of time and, and, and the years since, having the opportunity to associate with them and to、uh, be a part of, of that family in a small way has has really been something that's been very gratifying. I remember going to bed.、Um, I remember falling asleep. The next thing I remember was hearing a man's voice and having him tell me that there was a knife at my neck and to not make a sound and to get up and to go with him and. 
Um, I remember he took me up into the mountains behind my home and I remember just being terrified and at the same time feeling like this couldn't possibly be real because how could someone break into my home in my neighborhood, a nice neighborhood, and kidnap me out of my bed? Those were not the stories that I was told. I just remember thinking, he's going to rape me and he's going to kill me. And I remember actually stopping him asking at that point, at a certain point, if he was just going to rape and kill me. And I remember he just looked at me and he kind of smiled and he said he wasn't going to do that yet. And I remember we kept going and um, I remember coming to this hidden camp and just being so scared, terrified. I mean, this couldn't be real. How could this be my life? I mean... I remember thinking just less than, you know, just like less than 24 hours ago, I was at school. I was talking with my friends about graduating from eighth grade. I mean, what a momentous occasion. Um, and yet here I was being kidnapped, like by a stranger. I, I think a key element uh, of the Smart Family story is you know, when, it, when things got really dark, uh, a few months after Elizabeth was gone, the interest had waned, the uh, investigation had slowed. Instead of looking inward, the smarts looked outward. That's when they got involved in lobbying for the National Amber Alert and got heavily involved in, in, in putting their energy, channeling their energy into a good cause and to making a difference instead of dwelling on how difficult their circumstances were. And Elizabeth's carried that legacy forward. If you think about, you know, she's been through something more traumatic than most people could ever comprehend and has taken that and has made it so incredibly positive and has helped so many people. Uh, I have my, my down days. I have my adversity that I face, and, and sometimes I get mired in that. Uh, and it's always helpful to think and, and to see other people who take something that's so difficult and challenging and to try to, to serve and to try to find that opportunity to get, get outside of myself, uh, I think that's an important lesson that, that as we do that, uh, that, that we find happiness and we help others. And the smarts are just a tremendous example of it. I just got to this point where I just had to stop thinking this is as bad as it gets because I'd be crushed every time he'd take me to a new low. And I started, whenever I'd find myself in one of those situations, I would, my brain would start going to, to things that would make this situation worse. Like, you know, if I was unhappy, hungry, um, and I mean, I was always unhappy, but if I was hungry and always smelled bad, but smelled bad in particular, um, I'd come to myself and I'd be like, okay, well, it would be worse if it was raining today. So, I'm grateful that I'm not freezing right now. And it would almost be almost a challenge for me to find something that would make it worse so I could find something that actually was real in that situation to be grateful for. So there, there was a situation where uh, a national, a high-profile national journalist had pulled a trick that was, was really awful on, on the extended smart family. Elizabeth's cousins had been pulled into this situation. And there were some members of the family that wanted to take legal action. They were actually consulting with an attorney to, to sue this media personality. Uh, and there was a, a big discussion among the inner circle as to whether or not you know, this would, would be a good idea. 
And there were a couple who felt like, you know, we're not being strong enough. We, we, need, to, we need to take more of a stand with the media. We're being too diplomatic. Uh, and, and at that point, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. And so I went up to the chalkboard and I wrote Elizabeth's name and I circled it. And I said, the focus needs to be on finding Elizabeth. Nothing else matters. Uh, and they knew that. And, and at that point, it just, that conversation became moot and, and we moved forward with it. It was a very collaborative experience. I have to give the smarts a lot of credit. They recognized the role of communication. Uh, they trusted a young 29-year-old uh, and, and, and my colleagues who came in and, and, and worked with them and really understood that we knew some things that would be very helpful. And in the same vein, it was very collaborative. We were always talking, looking, uh, poking things apart and, and really trying to find the very best way to do things with that focus of how will this help us find Elizabeth. Eyewitness News Special Report. Breaking news that Elizabeth Smart has been found alive and is now in police custody. We have reporters covering every angle of this. They are en route to the family and to the police departments, and we will continue to bring you updates. But again, we wanted to... So this week marks 20 years since Elizabeth Smart was found. Um, you obviously played a key role in that. Walk me through that day and what that day was like for you. Sure. Uh, that day was unforgettable. On March 12th, there was an article published in the Salt Lake Tribune where the family went negative on law enforcement. And throughout the nine and a half months, the family made a concerted effort to not overtly criticize law enforcement. They knew that they were an important tool in finding Elizabeth. And despite there being lots of mistakes and issues, they were very measured and disciplined in how they responded. Tom Smart, Elizabeth's uncle, the night before, called the Tribune and just blasted law enforcement. Front page story, New York Times is calling, Today Show's calling, everyone wants to talk to the Smart family to see really where they are on it. So Ed and, and uh, Tom Smart and I were getting together to plan a press briefing. And actually, Tom was going to try to back, uh, take back some of the statements, and Ed was going, trying to emphasize the fact that what Tom was saying is that they weren't putting enough emphasis on Brian David Mitchell, and which was something that could have been said maybe in a better way, uh, and so we were working on that, and a few minutes uh, before uh, the meeting, I got a call from Ed. And Ed said, I've been called down to the Sandy City Police Department. I've been told not to call anyone, not to, to get there as quickly as possible. Uh, but I think I'm going to be late to the meeting. I might miss the meeting. I wanted to let you know. Uh, and very fortunately, one of the few people I'd kept in contact with from high school, in fact, he's a high school basketball teammate, threw me the assist of a lifetime. And uh, I called my friend Jason Burnett, uh, numerous times. He finally picked up uh, and, and was kind of actually pretty abrupt and then called me back a few minutes later and said, we brought in uh, an indigent teenager that we believe is Elizabeth Smart. And I paused and really was grasping to get composure and said, where did you find the body? And I, I still get emotional thinking about it. And Jason said, no, there's no body. She's in the room next to me. She's alive. Tell me about the moment when you really realized that you were free. And it might not have happened on that street in Sandy. Oh, it didn't. So, oh, it definitely so, didn't So when did, when did you realize, I am free and, and I have my life back? Um, it, was, it was after the shock of what felt like my dad appeared out of nowhere. But when, I mean, honestly, when he was hugging me and... I felt like a basement cell. I'm sure it wasn't, but it felt like a basement cell of the Sandy Police Station. Um, but when he was in there hugging me, because I knew 
I didn't know what was gonna happen. I mean, I didn't know if I was in trouble. I didn't know what was gonna happen next, but I knew that no matter what did happen, was that my dad was there and he was gonna do everything he could to always protect me and he wasn't gonna let anyone hurt me the way that these two people had hurt me the last nine months. And that, that was everything. We have been praying and hoping and lighting candles and never giving up and I cannot tell you what this means to this neighborhood, this city for, for a generation. She was actually there. You know, it was amazing. I mean, to think that, you know, I saw these three people and one of them was Elizabeth. I'm just so happy for her and her family. I'm such shock. I'm so happy. This is the most amazing miracle. I will never witness another miracle like this in my life. I'm here to celebrate. I'm here to thank everyone. And I'm just so very grateful. That day was just surreal. A lot of other things happened. I, I saw Elizabeth at the police station several times, uh, but it just wasn't, there wasn't an appropriate moment to introduce myself. And so I, I stayed in the background as well. Here's this person who had been in captivity, you know, just 12 hours earlier, or, or a few hours earlier initially. And, and it just didn't seem right to like, hey, I'm, you know, an extended member of your family now or something like that. And so I stayed back, but that night, uh, because we were getting so many calls in the evening that we could no longer communicate via phone. I went up to the house to strategize for the media the next day. And as I was getting up to the, the porch, I saw each of the smart children in satin pajamas standing on the steps behind Ed and Lois. Uh, it, it was almost like it was out of a Rockwell painting. And I, you know, I had faith that this family would be together again at some point. I just didn't know it would be, you know, at that time or in more mortality. It was such a touching thing to see. But as I got closer to the porch, Elizabeth gave this look like, who is this? You know, how did this guy get through two police checks to get up to our door? And Ed fortunately saw it and he said, Elizabeth, you don't know who this is. And she said, no, dad, I don't. I said, this is Chris. I consider him a brother. You should too. And I just sobbed. I just turned. She said she doesn't remember me sobbing, but I turned and I absolutely just lost it. I, and one of the happiest moments of my life uh, that day. And, and I just, you know, I, I, yeah, it's every year when it comes around, those feelings reemerge. And remembering that day and the miracles and seeing everything that family had been through. They had been through so much. They were so courageous. They did everything they could to find her and to put their faith out there. And in the end, there was this tremendous miracle. And, and seeing that come to fruition was indescribable. At a minimum, it was life-changing. Um, so after Elizabeth was found, you guys have got to see firsthand those interactions with her family. What was that like? Yeah, so I was in the elevator when she came down from the police station to go to Primary Children's Hospital and, and then home. And this was shortly after she'd been reunited with her siblings. And so they were still kind of talking and, and becoming reacquainted. And she and her brother, Andrew, uh, started talking smack back and forth about grades. Uh, Andrew had said to Elizabeth, you'll never believe it. I got straight A's while you were gone. And Elizabeth said, really? Are you serious? And he said, yeah, I, I did. And, and, and she said, what, did you cheat or something? And she elbows him and you must have got extra credit because, it's, you know, because I was gone. And it was just, it was a very light moment. It was something that you would expect, you know, two teenage siblings to have in an elevator as they're, you know, going down with their family. And, and it really demonstrated uh, her state of mind 
and, and how much that she wanted to be home. It was very clear that she was very happy. Uh, and, and, you know, she says in my foreword, she didn't know if she was ever going to be rescued. Yeah. She didn't know if she was ever going to come home. And so that, that moment, I think, was as surreal for her as it was for her parents and her siblings. I'm curious because just reading the sort of the summary of the, the book that you wrote, talk about what role faith played in your experience working with the smarts. You know, faith was such a key part of it. I, I, I didn't set out to write a book about faith or about the culture, uh, but as I went through the process, I, was, um, I, I met a, a group of writers from around the country that had no connections to Utah, no connections to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And as uh, we were reviewing each other's work, they kept coming back to, wait a second, what is this? You need to talk about your culture. You need to talk mm. more about your faith. We're not interested in your religion, but we're fascinated by your culture. And that really spurred me, and it also was really helpful, having a sounding board from outside that, that could help me translate some of the things. Does this make sense? Does it not make sense? Uh, but they really pushed me in, in a miraculous way. Um, I write in the book about growing up in the culture as well, and the lessons that I learned and how they prepared me uh, for this experience of working with the Smart family. And as I was working on this braided memoir, tying these two stories together, the culture was the glue. Uh, it was such a key element of my life, and as I was able to go back and, and trace the experiences I had growing up and the things I learned in the culture, it made me realize not just how much that helped and prepared me, but what a big role that played in bringing Elizabeth home with our overall community. Can you talk about the, the pressure that, uh, <laughs> that you experienced during that time? I mean, I'm just imagining, you know, when someone's missing, like we've just seen with just recent missing cases as well, like the, the message that's getting out is like just critical. So what, what was that like? Matt, the pressure was immense. I, I don't even know how to describe it. To give you some perspective on that, I broke four or five teeth during that period just from grinding at night. Didn't even realize what I was doing. I was losing hair, putting weight on. I was a newlywed. My marriage was going through all kinds of turmoil. Fortunately, my wife was incredible, and we, we, we worked through all of it, but, and it made us stronger in the long term, but it was incredibly difficult. Initially, there was 20-hour days, 20-plus-hour days. I would get home usually nine, or usually about 11, 11.30 at night, and then I would start getting calls from the, the morning shows, the network morning shows at about 3 a.m. So very little time, uh, very little rest, um, very little time to eat. It was, it was a pace like, unlike anything I've, I've seen since. I don't know if I was <laughs> this age, I would be able to even keep up with what was necessary. And there was a team. It wasn't just me. There was a whole team of people working on this. And we knew that one misstep could be the difference between finding Elizabeth or her not being found. And that was incredible pressure. There was an incredible way. I've done a lot of crisis communications work. I've worked on some large national uh, crises. And the weight of a missing child, it, it, it just, nothing compares to it. It, it just, you know, it, you're just constantly making, wanting to know that you're doing the right thing, doing the best thing for the family, and, and there's so little room for error. And that's, faith came into play with that a lot, if I get a little bit religious here. It was like serving a second mission. Uh, hmm. You know, as, as missionaries, those who have served missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they know that they get out, out wherever they are in the mission field, and it's incredible. There's so much pressure, and it's so over their head. And I found as a missionary, I was constantly saying silent prayers. Help me to know what to do. Help me to know where to go. And that was constant with the SMART case. 
I, I was young, I was 29 years old. It was way above my head. Uh, way above the, the, the heads of the group that we were working with. And, and we really relied on the spirit to know what direction to go and, and, and what to do. And, and really we're, we're led, we really were instruments. One of the great things in writing the book is it gave me the opportunity to go back and really examine that experience and to examine different experiences that happened within it and to slow those down and to look at it from different angles and to really try to see what the lesson was. I think if I had written this book you know, right after she was rescued, which was something I thought about doing, it would have been a very different book. It would have been very factual. And in this case, you know, good memoirs aren't about what happened. It's what was learned from that experience. And some of those main lessons, uh, you know, and, and some of this goes back to growing up. I grew up next door to a hidden broken war hero with a secret. He was an alcoholic. We fought for 13 years. We had a very acrimonious relationship. Uh, and the day before I left on my mission, I knocked on his door to say goodbye. And I learned his story and learned who he really was and, and, and the price he had paid for our freedom. And it was life changing. I had prejudged him for 13 years. And I tried to go in open-minded. I think there was some intuition about being open-minded. In this case, initially, the family was accused. You know, a lot of people publicly and in the media thought the family was involved in, in some way. Then it was Richard Reese, you know, the, family's, uh, the family's handyman. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence surrounding Richard Reese. Uh, and, and I think as, as I looked at it, there, there are probably two lessons. I'm a little long-winded in this, but there are probably two main uh, lessons, Matt. One is that we need to be slower to judge. There were so many, so many people jumped to conclusions, myself included, during that period. Uh, and quicker to serve. The volunteer effort during the SMART case, for me, is one of the most enduring memories. That first week, more than 10,000 people stopped what they were doing, and they came out to search for her. To give that some context, the next largest search for a missing child in recent history was 4,000 people over several months. Wow. And the people who came together, it wasn't just the numbers, it was the way in which people came together. I remember one day seeing a guy pull up in a Porsche, very nicely dressed guy. And I remember the bus dropping off a group of people, a couple of them looked like they might be homeless. And a little while later, seeing them sitting together in the orientation and talking and conversing in a way that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And I saw in that orientation room, every day I went through there, there was just an amazing spirit. And I would see people from different walks of life, different ages, different socioeconomic groups, different political persuasions, even different ethnicities, that put everything aside with one focus, and that was finding Elizabeth. And that was so endearing. It's something that we need more than ever. So if there's a message for my book, it's that we need to be slower to judge and quicker to serve. Update you for what we know now that Elizabeth Smart is in custody and is alive. And we will be back with the latest. You know, having been through everything that I've been through, I feel like we have tools to create change. We have education that can help you know, lead to prevention of these crimes. I mean, not 100%, but enough that we really could see numbers start to change. And it isn't enough just to be like, oh, okay, well, here's $100 or... You know, oh, like, oh, th that's okay. Like, that's great. Good for those people. Like, the way I would have been is not enough. Um, because we, we have so much today 
to really make a difference and to really see a shift in, in the statistics and the culture in everything because unfortunately you know these crimes they are so common every what 68 seconds a person is sexually abused every nine minutes that person is a child um, you know 25 percent of undergrad female students have a completed rape happen to them i mean a forcible rape completed um, you know, you're more likely as a female student, you're twice as likely to be raped, two times more likely than you are to be robbed. Like, it's terrible. It's like the numbers are so high that it's just, it's heartbreaking and shocking that like this has really not been more of a focus as a society. You've, you did something really big with what happened to you in this, in this incident, you could have uh, walked away or, or kind of receded into a quiet life, right? Mm. And, and maybe never even been recognized again as a redhead in the mall or something, right? <laughs> but, but you decided to do something important with this. Why, why did that matter to you? Why was that part of who you are? Um, I think my family, I mean, my parents, my grandparents, I think my family have left a legacy of service. And I mean, it was always important to everyone in my family um, to make sure that we understood that we should, like the world should be a better place for having had us in it. Um, you know, like we should, like if we stay at a friend's house, we should leave it better than we found it. You know, if we borrowed someone's car, we should leave the tank on full, even if it was only given to us on a quarter full. We should leave it on full. Um, I mean, it was, you know, like, go look beyond yourself. Like, you know, what does your neighbor need? Like, how can you help? Like, is there somewhere you can make a difference and, like, help someone out that you're not? Um, I mean, I feel like that was always kind of a theme in my family growing up quite a lot and then as I've gone on in my own life and as I've listened to so many stories I mean even this morning I don't even know how this individual got my phone number but I got a phone call this morning just from a survivor um, talking to me about what she went through and where she's at right now and and there are so I think there's so many more commonalities between us than there are differences I mean yes like, I don't know if anyone's story will ever get as much attention as mine did. And is it fair? No, absolutely not fair. And do I feel like everyone should receive the same amount? Absolutely. Um, but I think, like, the feelings of, of betrayal and shame and fear and guilt, um, I think there's a lot on an emotional level that we can connect over and that we have a lot in common. And as I've heard these other stories and I've come to realize just how sad and common it is, how prevalent it is in our society, how so many survivors are too scared to speak out or um, feel too worried for their safety, for their family's safety, that they won't be believed, um, that there's, there's an opportunity for me to make a difference and it's not just an opportunity it feels more like a responsibility and it's something that I feel deeply passionate about so um, why wouldn't I do it
Elizabeth Smart's important work, of course, continues through her foundation. That does it for us this week on KSL Plus. I'm Matt Rascone. We'll see you again next week. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.